Lee. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, good morning to all of you in Cafe Church. Hello. Um, you're going to have to uh, forgive me. I, um, I am on now two pairs of glasses. If I wear these, I can see you. If I wear these, I can see my sermon. Now, at the end of the morning, you might want to decide which pair of glasses I should have worn. I don't know. So um, it's a bit annoying because at school I have to teach wearing these ones. And then when I have to get down to mark the children's books, they go, Mr. J, you're wearing the wrong glasses. And I have to go and find the other ones. So I can actually see what they're, um, they're actually saying. A story is told. There was a Sunday evening service. And the speaker was uh, really going gunning for it. And he'd been going on for quite a while. And there was a pause. And a little sigh was heard at the back of the church. And a little girl said, Mommy, is it still Sunday? (laughs) Now, I'm very sorry. I'm going to start with an apology. I think this morning I've bitten off more than I can chew. I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks. We've been on holiday in France and we've been driving up and down the French motorways and different things and I've been mulling this through in my mind and different thoughts have come to me and as I've come this week to put it down on paper and to bring it all together, I've got a feeling it's probably not as good as the one that I preached to myself on the French motorway. So you'll have to forgive me for that. And also, I've got nothing on the screen as well, because we're going to dart in around the Bible in different places. So I've got no PowerPoint, and there are no scriptures up on the screen. So if you want a Bible, because we're going to be doing quite a bit of reading in the Bible in different places, you might want to get one now, or if the uh, stewards have got some around, if people put their hand up, if you just want one to be brought to you, because I would encourage you to follow the readings in your Bible this morning. So here we are on our uh, continuing our series on superheroes or heroes. I say continuing our series. I haven't actually heard one of them yet because I've been away on holiday for the last few weeks. So I've got no idea about what's been spoken about before. I know I haven't chosen someone who's already been uh, spoken on, but I don't know how the format's gone. But here we go. We'll see what happens. I wonder, um, if I was to ask you what your definition of a hero is, I wonder what you might say. Now, the Collins English Dictionary says that um, a hero is someone distinguished by exceptional courage, nobility, and fortitude, or someone who is idealized for possessing superior qualities in any field. I think we've made the word hero actually synonymous with the word super, haven't we? to uh, create a breed of characters who seemingly can do anything, who have a range of powers and are so far beyond what mortal man can do that they seem able to uh, achieve the impossible. Well, we must, of course, remember that these characters are all fictional. As much as children try to act out their Spider-Man, Superman, He-Man stuff in the playground, they're all fictional characters. So... Where does that leave us with the notion of a hero in the Bible? 
There are many who had to show exceptional courage to follow God in the Bible. And I think some of the truest heroes in the Bible aren't even named. Let's take a little quick reading from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you know your Bible, you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is the uh, by faith hall of fame. But Hebrews chapter 11, and then uh, reading from verse 32 says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Not even named. Perhaps some of the biggest heroes of faith in the past just says some were, some were. They're not even named, are they? But I think these unnamed people who had the courage to stand for God in these circumstances are perhaps some of the truest heroes in the Bible. And that made me think, about Christians today in North Korea, Christians today in China, Christians today in places where there is extreme opposition to the church of Jesus Christ and are still facing these things. God calls us to follow him and his direction when the world is going in a completely different direction it's quite interesting being a teacher. And part of the, uh, the child-teenage mindset is to be like everybody else around. You have to wear the same trainers. You have to wear the same type of clothes. You have to have the same brand. You have to all be listening to the same music. You have to be part of the crowd. It takes a lot of courage to stand out against that, doesn't it? And perhaps you've experienced some of that in your own life. You've had to stand out and be different to show a difference. There were two people I originally considered to talk about this morning. And both had to stand out from the crowd of the, from the crowd and the world and the expectations around them. The first person I was going to choose, possibly my first choice, was Daniel. A godly man carried away into captivity when that time came. But he refused to eat the food of the king. He stood out. There was an expectation that he was going to follow what was said. But he said, no, I'm going to follow my God. And I think in doing that, Daniel, as a stranger in a foreign land, gives us a picture of the Christian life today. Called to stand in a different way, in a foreign land. 
The other person I considered was Nehemiah. Someone who followed God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, even though the world around him was intimidating him and calling him to abandon the project and was getting quite physical about stopping what God was going to do. Both of those people had to stand up against the crowds. And then a few weeks ago, we had um, one of our sisters stood here talking about the healing that she'd experienced around with her kidneys. And she talked about Hezekiah. And she talked about feeling a little bit like Hezekiah with the extra time that had been given. And of course, my mind, I don't know about your mind, but my mind does that sort of chain thing where you hear a word and then you start, you think about something else and you can't help it. If I say to you all now, don't think about a ballet dancing elephant, I can see half of you are thinking about a ballet dance. You know, you hear a word and it sort of chains things off with you, doesn't it? And I started to think about Hezekiah as uh, Hezekiah was mentioned. And then I thought, well, actually, Hezekiah then went on to Father Manasseh, one of the most evil, wicked kings that was seen in the Bible. And possibly Manasseh was born during those extra 15 years, because the Bible tells us he was 12 years old when he became king. And from Manasseh came Amon, who also did, it says in the Bible, what was really evil in the sight of the Lord. And then from Amon came Josiah. And the more I sort of thought about that, and the more I let that dwell on my mind, the more I felt the Lord was drawing me to look at Josiah. So hence I abandoned Daniel and Nehemiah for Josiah. And I also thought it fitted in recently on our study of King Saul and thinking about the kings that way. So I decided to go and explore some of the background to the kings and the times when Josiah lived. So what I'd like us to do is to read some passages together from the book of Deuteronomy. So if you've got your Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, if you're not so familiar with your Bible, Deuteronomy is towards the front in the Old Testament, the fifth book of the Bible. We're going to read a little bit about what God said to the children of Israel before they went in to take possession of the promised land. So we're going to start off in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And the reason we're reading these parts here is because we're going to go on to read a little bit before we get into Josiah about King Manasseh. And I want you to pay attention to what is said here because then I want you to think about what is said when we come to talk about a little bit about Manasseh. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, reading the first four verses. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Moving over to verse uh, 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you are not ensnared to follow them 
after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And just back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. God foresaw a time when the nation would ask for a king. And this is what God said about it. Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting to read at verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up from his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." It seems that from the outset of the kings, even from the time of Solomon, the third king, the son of David, whom God said had a heart after his own heart, these things seem to have been disobeyed. Solomon had many horses, made alliances with Egypt through marriage, acquired many wives who then ultimately led him astray and turned his heart against God. And did you notice what the king was meant to do? The king was meant to write out a copy of that law for himself. The king was meant to write out a copy of that law 
himself. Let's see a little bit of the time that uh, Josiah was born into. If you'd now like to turn in your Bible to the second book of Kings, 2 Kings chapter 21. Bearing in mind what we've just read in Deuteronomy and what God said you shall not do, let's just have a little look at what the Bible says about Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Hepzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved image of, image of Asherah and he made, uh, he had made and he set it in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to do all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the background into which we find Josiah. Everything that God had said you will not do when you go in to take that land, Manasseh has done. Wizards, mediums, omen, divination, burning his children in sacrifice. This is what's taking place. Yes, if you read 2 Chronicles, you find that Manasseh repented. God led him away. He was taken captive. He repented and he came back and he tried to make up for some of those things. But his son Amman kept going with what he had done previously, heavily influenced by his father's life. Do we think Manasseh wrote out a copy of the law to keep it in his heart so he could serve God as it was? No, he didn't. And in the land that was meant to be the place where God was honoured and served and a light to the nations round about of the truth and the reality and the love of the one true God, there is idolatry and despicable practices that were worse than before they went in to take possession of the land. And it's into this background we find Josiah at the age of eight becoming king. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. 
Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of, I hate reading these words, Bozkath. You practice them at home, don't you? But they never come out right when you're stood in front of everybody else reading them. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. It was interesting, wasn't it? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 17 about the kings. It said that from the commandments of the Lord, they should not turn to the right hand or to the left. And it says here of Josiah, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left. And there aren't many of the kings that ruled of which that can be said. We find a little bit more about Josiah's early life in 2 Chronicles 34. And it tells us that when he was 16 years old, so eight years into his reign, he began to seek the Lord with all his heart. And that when he was 20 he began to purge the nation of the idolatry in which it was engaged in. He chopped down altars, he removed carved images. He started to purge and purify the land. Now, even though he was king, this very well could have made him unpopular. The nation enjoyed its idolatry and the way it had gone. And suddenly they're being told, no. You are going to go the way of the Lord. I don't necessarily think everybody was on board with that. He was only a young man. And if you read about it in 2 Chronicles, when he was 16 years old and he turns to the Lord, it says, yet while he was still a boy. So he would have been seen as quite young to be doing all these things. Yet Josiah has the courage to make a stand for God in the midst of all this potential opposition around him, like Daniel did, like Nehemiah did, because he knew he had to go God's way, even though it was a battle against the tide of times. And here, I believe, begins the challenge of Josiah to our life today. Are we prepared to go God's way against the tide that is accepted in the world around us in such an uncompromising way as Josiah did. And I don't know about you, but the more you see things changing, and the more you see the law changing, and the more you see different things coming in, that tide has turned. And we're going to be increasingly in that position and place of standing against that. Let's read on in 2 Kings and see how this grew. So we are now in the uh, 18th year of Josiah's reign. So he became king at 18 years. He's about 26 years old now. It says in... uh, 2 Kings 22, verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shapham, the son of Aziliar, son of somebody else, to the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. 
And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the priest said to Shapham the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shapham and he read it. And Shapham the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight in the house of the Lord. Then Shapham the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shapham read it before the king. So while repairs are being made to the house of the Lord, a discovery is made. A book is found. Not just any book, but it's the book of the law of God. It's the word of God. The book is found. The word of God was suddenly found in the house of God. Now, doesn't that sound strange? It had been lost. The word of God had been lost. And where was it? It was in the house of God. For all these years, the word of God had been missing in the land. King after king after king had walked against what was written in there and opposed um, to the right... and. in there, and that as opposed to writing out their own copy of it and keeping it and not turning from the right hand to the left hand, there's no reference to it at all. The word of God was lost. And where was it lost? It was lost in the house of the Lord. I, I just can't get that out of my head. The word of God was lost, and it was lost in the house of the Lord. The place where it really should have been read and known In one way, it was lost. Yet in another way, it was exactly where one might expect to find it. And as I read and thought about this as I was driving along the motorways of France, this challenged me in a lot of different ways. That thinking about that, first of all, the word of God was lost physically. And secondly, the word of God was lost spiritually. The word of God was lost physically and the word of God was lost spiritually. It is considered by some writers and commentators that this book of the law might have been removed out of the place where it should have been by previous kings as they made way for their altars and idols that they placed into the house of the Lord. Some are even speculating that this might have been the last surviving copy of this particular book. Now, we're not, it's not defined too much here in the Bible. Some people think it's actually the book of Deuteronomy. Others just say perhaps it was the whole law and it was the whole scroll. We don't know. But it was possibly the last copy. If the book of the law was removed and then forgotten about and lost physically, then that's going to mean it was lost spiritually and led to the resultant state of the nation. They would not have the word of God to refer to, to consult, to guide, to teach, to train them. The core message about obedience 
was lost. And worship of the Lord God was practiced amongst worship of idols and God just being relegated to one God that could be worshipped. And the challenge came to me while I was thinking about this. Where is the word of God for us today? Where is the word of God for us today? Where are our Bibles? Where are our Bibles? I think we probably know where they are. But what layer of dust lies on top of them? in the same way was probably lying on this word of the Lord that had been found at that point. And I'm not talking to anybody else in this room here but me. Because I know, at the moment, I am not reading my Bible like I should be. Life comes in and takes over, doesn't it? And very quickly, and very subtly, this gets lost, doesn't it? And I found that challenge. Is our Bible as good as lost to us? Which is therefore then the beginning of us being lost spiritually, of going our own way and doing what is right in our own eyes. When the word of God is lost to us physically, how long before we go the way of the world, go the way that everybody else is going, adopt the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, for whichever is changing and has no constants. And yet Psalm 1 tells us that those whose delight is in the law of the Lord are like trees. They're planted, they're rooted, they're firm, they're secure. Where is our Bible? That's us personally. But let us also think, is the word lost in our churches? Most churches, if not all, probably know where their Bibles are. But where are the Bibles in services, worships, devotions? Are they opened? Are they referred to? Are they integral? I think there are some churches out there where the Bible isn't even opened as part of the sermon. Dare I ask the question, what about in this church? What about in our church? Is the Bible open? When Saphon returns with this word, it's read to Josiah, and I'm looking at the time and I've run out of it. I told you I'd bitten off much more than I could chew this morning. He heard the word. It was read to him, and it spoke to him. It cut him to the quick. Some commentators have speculated if it was Deuteronomy that was found and if it was Deuteronomy that was read to Josiah, then he would have heard all the bits that we read out previously about what the nation shouldn't do when it went into the land. And Josiah would have seen his nation and his people And some of the songs that Ian has chosen for us this morning to engage in our worship, you could almost imagine Josiah, Lord, heal our nation. Revive us. For we are not where we should be. Josiah hears the word and he allows it to penetrate his heart. And what he then does is he doesn't doesn't just stop there. 
it goes out and it flows out because he calls all the people together and he reads the word to them. And he says, hear the word of the Lord. And it says in verse uh, chapter 23 that he went on to read it and it says in um, chapter 23, verse 3, that the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. If you then carry on to read down chapter 23, which I plan to do, we haven't got time, read it yourself at home, you find Josiah then goes on a spree. He gets rid of all those altars. He takes everything down. He grinds it down. He takes and removes everything that God said should have been removed from the land before they went in. Josiah purges the land from what had been happening. And later on in chapter, um, in chapter 23 and verse 21, we find that the Passover is kept. And it says there um, in the Bible that it was a Passover that hadn't been kept like that since the time of the judges. The Passover was really important. It was a remembrance of what God had done to the people, bringing them out of slavery, out of captivity, bringing them freedom. The Passover said to the nation of Israel, I am your God, you are my people. You are my chosen people. And it hadn't been celebrated like that for all this time. And as Josiah leads the nation in true Revival. There is an acknowledgement once again. You are our God. We are your people. We sung about revival this morning in some of our songs, didn't we? Some people think revival is about lots of people outside of the church becoming Christians. Actually, I don't follow that myself. I think revival is for Christians. And I'm in good company with that because C.H. Spurgeon wrote in December 1866, the word revive wears its meaning upon its forehead. It is from the Latin and may be interpreted thus, to live again. Re, prefix re means again, come, come, and vivre from the Latin meaning to live, to live again, to receive again a life which had almost expired, to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished. He goes on to say, in these days when the dead are not miraculously restored and we do not expect to see the revival of a person who is totally dead and we could not speak of the revival of a thing which had never lived before, it is clear that the term revival can only be applied to a living soul or to that which had once lived. To be revived is a blessing which can only be enjoyed by those who have some degree of life. Those who have no spiritual life are not and cannot be, in the strictest sense of the term, the subjects of a revival. Many blessings come to the unconverted in consequence of a revival among Christians, but the revival itself has to do only with those who already possess spiritual life. There must be vitality in some degree before there can be a quickening of vitality, or in other words, a revival. A true revival is to be looked for in the church of God. Only in the river of gracious life can the pearl of revival be found. The nation 
practically dead, heading down towards exile. Josiah brings about a revival, rekindles that life amongst God's people. We've talked a lot recently about wanting to see our town turn to Christ. It says off on there, doesn't it, the mission of this statement of this church is about being a blessing to our nation and our land round about. I believe if we want to see that, then revival is not experienced out there. It's got to be experienced in here in this room. Revival has to be experienced by us. Revival begins in here and spreads out of the door that way as that life is rekindled within us. How did Josiah bring about that revival? He heard the word of God. He valued the word of God. He obeyed the word of God. He heard the word, he valued the word, he obeyed the word. And he led the nation in repentance and it was a solid witness to the truth of God. The hymn writer James Edwin Orr penned these words, O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. Thy word declares thou wilt supply our need. For blessings now, O Lord, I humbly plead. Josiah went against the tides, went against everything that was there, and he stood firm with the word of the Lord. That's why I think he's a superhero. But I think that challenge comes to us. Are we standing with this as well? Through the increasingly difficult times, I believe, that are going to come our way. I've bitten off far more than I could chew this morning. I think I've prepared an entire sermon series if you want to go and read a little bit more about Josiah and a little bit about the time beforehand and Manasseh and Amman and, and what happened, do so. It's a fascinating read and I've really enjoyed getting back into that. But let's follow the word wholeheartedly as Josiah did. <laughs>